Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara. I am the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. On behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by Ryan McKenna. Ryan is the CEO of Griffin Global Asset Management and he's here to join us for the purposes of our leaders report that will be coming out in January. Ryan, before we get into the meat of the conversation, perhaps you'd tell our watchers a little bit about Griffin. Uh, sure, Joe. Thank you so much for having me, and Victoria as well. Um, we, uh, Griffin Global Asset Management, was formed in January 2020, and we formed a joint venture uh, and a general partnership with Bain Capital. And um, we set out to build an alternative asset management platform, of which one significant vertical will be aircraft leasing. Um, over the last, I guess now, nearly three years, um, we have pivoted entirely up credit in uh, aircraft leasing and have done uh, a little bit over $3 billion of new aircraft deliveries, so brand new deliveries from Boeing and Airbus. Um, we have made an investment uh, in the new flag carrier of the Dominican Republic, so our first operating investment, um, to capitalize that startup airline, which now has its first five maxes in service, uh, and we'll keep growing in different uh, verticals uh, as we grow the business. Yeah. And I'm going to be really interested to touch on some of those verticals, particularly the RHA piece uh, in a few minutes. Maybe level setting to begin with, right? You guys obviously came in with a clean balance sheet, you know, kind of post-crisis. In your view, where does the recovery sit currently? And from an opportunities perspective, kind of what geographies are you targeting? Um, we certainly came in uh, with very, very fortunate timing. And I would put that in the category, as I said last year, uh, it's better to be lucky than good. Starting a firm in January 2020 without any legacy assets or, um, or issues to deal with. So we started with fresh capital and have uh, tried to be thoughtful in how we deploy it. Um, we are not traders per se. Like I have never been oriented around trying to be smarter than a market with bottom ticking or top ticking uh, valuation or rates, et cetera. Uh, we really have looked to deploy capital to long-term partners that we think will win over many years that are not sort of timing related type trades. Um, with regards to your question of where we are in the recovery, I think of this as sort of that, that bullwhip analogy where there was major um, distortions created by the global shutdown uh, post-COVID or right when COVID happened where you know people were sidelined. There was then an enormous amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus to sort of re-energize an economy that put a ton of um, you know capital in people's pockets in the form of valuation, in the form of direct um, direct stimulus that was given to people. Uh, there was certainly pent up demand for people wanting to get back and travel. Uh, and it feels like we're now in the middle of that sort of other side of that whip, you know, converging back to what will be a new normal as cost of capital has increased dramatically, inflation has taken over globally, and when do people and consumers uh, think twice about, uh, about their desire to fly or desire to spend uh, more broadly. So my perspective is we're in the early innings still of what it takes to get back to a sort of normal, we're going to grow 2, 3, 4% a year. Um, so we remain very cautious um, in trying to find businesses and people to support that really are going to survive through the significant challenges that I still think uh, exist. And if you think, is there a through line of the opportunities you have pursued over the last couple of years? You talk about deploying that three billion. Is there a theme on the airlines you've engaged with? Or yeah. as you say, are, are you just making an assessment on a kind of 
point in time? No, there is definitely a theme to it. So we have um, certainly taken, uh, our view is that if you survive the pandemic by levering up or by taking on additional capital, that it really is just a question of time um, rather than uh, if uh, you will need to restructure. Um, it's very, very difficult to be cost competitive with carriers that have already gone through those processes to fundamentally change cost structures. And what I mean by that is whether it's labor and uh, changing sort of those union contracts, whether it is fleet and changing sort of what airplanes you fly and what routes you fly, or uh, amount of debt outstanding. I think it's very, very difficult to envision a world where there's such great profitability at carriers that they can simply delever naturally in the face of what is very stiff competition for those that have gone through that process. Additionally, the sort of low cost and ultra low cost models, I think we're structurally set up to um, be advantaged in, in this type of an environment. Um, we also are big believers in newly capitalized businesses. Uh, so not just Aurajet, but others that have really strong uh, backers and scale uh, from capital as well as the OEMs to, to succeed. Um, I'd say those categories and maybe um, the fourth being uh, state-backed carriers, and not all state-backed carriers are made the same, as we've seen certain bankruptcies even with sort of state-backing. I think that requires particularly nuanced uh, analysis with which carrier is truly too big to fail. But those are the categories that we've spent a lot of time um, supporting. And, and you touched on some of the challenges that are there from the macro environment, both geopolitical uh, and from an economic perspective. How challenging is that making medium-term planning, right? So we, we have inflation like we haven't seen in mine or your lifetime. Uh, we have oil volatile and higher than it was, and, and interest rates particularly, right? So, so how challenging is that when you plan on, and you know, and I, you've been relatively aggressive in deploying capital, as you say, in a targeted way, but how challenging is the macro environment making medium-term planning? Well, I think it's very, and I'd, I'd add one more category, which is currency. Um, so those three plus currency to me are um, ever-present issues that need to be thought through. And I, I think people uh, in general, uh, our industry I think has this um, incredible spirit of this too shall pass. Like we can get through anything because what hasn't been thrown at the uh, global commercial uh, aviation market over the decades. Um, I, I think this is going to be particularly challenging. I think it's wonderful to have had a summer of really high um, passenger demand and incredible prices that have gone with that. So the pricing data has been remarkable. I just am not so confident that that sustains. Um, and so medium-term planning, again, I think you have to have long-term planning. Like I don't think we're in for a trade, I guess is my original commentary. Like there's not something that I say, oh, well at this price we're good and we want to deploy here. Like we really do fundamental analysis on whether that carrier is going to be able to survive what we think are continued challenges. And you mentioned oil, you mentioned um, interest rates, which are very, very clearly elevated and for much longer than I think a lot of people were willing to admit six months ago. Um, and still the demand side is, is unclear. Consumers remain incredibly strong now, but um, how long? Uh, I think that's a significant question. Uh, I think the connectivity globally has changed post-COVID, um, where you can fly and where you can't fly. Certainly Russia in the middle of that conflict um, provides a lot of challenges for certain routes that once were possible to fly that no longer are possible to fly. So my perspective is there's challenge everywhere. And so while yes, we're, we're willing to deploy in size, um, I think we're going to be very specific in who we're backing uh, and making sure that those business models have an ability to outcompete relative to their sort of market and their and their demand picture. Uh, 
over the coming multiple years. So it's a mid-term, not a near-term look, mid to long-term. And, and maybe keeping with that interest rate theme piece, um, just the challenges in pricing at the moment, right? We're obviously in a very volatile piece, and I should say we're recording this at the end of October. Um, the challenges on that from a pricing perspective, so trying to understand a little bit around you know, what's that doing to lease rate factors? What's it doing to relative value? Obviously, you upsized the warehouse quite recently, right? Do you want to talk to me a little bit on the funding challenges and pricing challenges that are coming with this interest rate environment? Well, I think you highlighted all of them in, in the nature of the question. Um, I think that cost of capital writ large has gone up, um, and there's less capital available. So both in credit and equity, I think there is less than there has been. Um, and so that's number one. Uh, so supply has reduced. Um, I think the cost of all of that capital, as I mentioned, has gone up, both in the form of credit and equity costs. Uh, and there's a lag effect of like how long does it take for business models to adjust to that? Because you cannot simply just pass that along. I mean, I, I would love to say we're in an environment where you can raise 3% cost of debt like you could for the better part of the last decade, but U.S. Treasuries are higher than that right now. So that's not really a, a realistic um, piece of the inputs as I think carriers focus on how they price their, their actual ultimate service. So again, I don't start from the cost of capital. I start from what the businesses can actually do and what the, the sort of elasticity of demand they have in their given markets. And from there, then it becomes a pricing dynamic. Um, I would say that as we sit here today, there are fewer people bidding on different, um, different transactions than there would have been in the past, although we never have been particularly successful at RFPs. Um, but they're important to understand like where market clearing prices are. There's no question that lease rates have gone up, lease rate factors have gone up, as have prices for assets, um, because I think the inflation piece of it at the front end is non-trivial. Uh, escalation and inflation uh, from the OEM deliveries is absolutely a real thing. Those are formulas that were agreed to, you know, in some cases 10 years ago, uh, in other cases two years ago, but uh, nonetheless, all of them have price increases at the, the front end of that curve of what the planes are worth. I would assume over time that whole curve shifts outward to go with it, um, but that takes time to adjust. So all of these things are really difficult to, to sort of isolate and say which factor is the one in any of those pricing analysis, but they all have to go into that calculus about where we think makes sense to support and, and deploy. Not a market that you've played in yet with Griffin, but one you would be very familiar with in your former life is Capital Markets ABS. Um, and more to get your general thoughts on it, I know it's, it's probably not one you're keen to tap in any immediate piece, but, but your thoughts on where that market sits in this heightened interest rate environment you know, it, it has been such an important channel on the secondary trading market. You know, it coming back will be important. Just your thoughts around, as I say, in your, your former life, you would have been heavily involved in it. It's a market that is near and dear to my heart, as you well know, um, and so I appreciate that. Um, look, I, I think, and I think I might have said this to you guys last year, um, I do believe it is different this time. What I mean by different this time is I don't think there's any fundamental problem with the ABS structures. Um, you look back 10 years ago, there were underlying flaws with the ABS structures that had the interests of bondholders uh, at odds with equity holders and with managers. And I think a lot of those alignment issues were resolved in the middle part of the 2010s that made the product work. The issue right now is actually, I don't think the market is closed. I think that buyers and sellers are not willing to meet at the clearing levels uh, of where the market currently would trade. So. I'm not trying to say one side is right or wrong, but I think that a lot of the issuers um, are in a challenging position because they have yesterday's assets 
meaning they have lease rates and purchase prices that were struck multiple years ago in one interest rate environment and probably went through some non-trivial restructuring, uh, amending and extending during COVID, which also would have impacted what you're generating in returns wise, and now have a very, very different environment for the liabilities. And so that is a particularly uh, difficult square to circle, so to speak. Um, so I think for assets that are performing or assets that have cash flows, I think the ABS market would be completely functioning um, in today's environment. I think you could get deals done. I think the problem is, is that there aren't the issuers with assets that make sense to get done at where the current uh, cost of credit is pricing. And your guess is as good as mine as to where that sort of starts to rationalize, but you'd have to think that sooner rather than later, large platforms have to start issuing in the capital markets, have to start issuing you know, unsecured bonds, have to issue secured bonds, deliveries keep coming, and then at some point you need to refi existing um, pieces of paper. So I think it's a little bit of a waiting game right now. Yeah. And a lot of the issuers, I think, have been hoping that rates would come back uh, and be more favorable. At this point, it's difficult to see that anytime in the near term. Yeah, and I think that's it. it, it we just feel as if we're in that sense of stasis at the minute, right? The yeah. stall in the market. Um, and obviously, if ABS isn't there at the moment, it, it puts an increased importance, I guess, on the other options, right? So, so your thoughts, and I mentioned the warehouse a little bit, your thoughts on maybe the traditional lending market, and also your thoughts a little bit around the non-traditional lenders. So the ones we've seen come in, um, looking at lending platforms, specific to aviation, but, but not your typical banks. Just your thoughts on how that market is developing. Yeah, I don't really think that market is very deep. Um, I think the banks are the market for that lending piece of it. Um, I, I think there's always going to be a role for sort of specialty lending uh, for custom circumstances. But I think broadly speaking, the banks are extremely healthy and have uh, capacity for the right types of loans. Um, there was obviously a window during COVID where everybody was kind of seized up trying to understand where the world would go, but that passed very, very quickly. So. Um, my perspective is that the banks are really good at doing what they do, and again, I'm not calling what spread or what you know uh, base rate they're doing it off of and what the fees are, but I think they're very good at serving um, the needs of uh, global aircraft leasing platforms and airlines. So I still think that is where the vast majority, if not virtually all, of the lending will continue to, to exist. Um, what was the second part? Was on opening the markets. So that non-traditional lending piece. Okay. But I, but I, I think I think you answered me there when you talked about that not a very deep market yet, right? Curious that we might see more players come in there, and it might be a leg for. We've probably seen a couple of the larger private equity uh, asset managers move into that a little bit, right? And again, I, I think I just I, I've never really gotten my arms around that market because. Um, you're dealing with the competition for that is deposit-taking lenders that will always structurally have a lower cost of capital than, uh, especially finance business, that has to have some source of equity that is not a deposit. Um, so uh, from my perspective, that cost of capital always is going to be higher. And really the time when that works is when the banks have some issue that means yeah. they're sidelined. And I don't see that in the near term. So clearly there was a window where that might have happened uh, during COVID, but I think over the long term, uh, you know, we have big issues economically if banks are not able to function uh, at, you know, I'm not gonna call what LTV, and I'm not gonna call again what the spread is um, or what upfront fees look like, but I, I don't see a structural problem with lending from the, the money center banks or even global banks. 
And, and on the investor side, so you mentioned obviously you guys have been extremely well backed by Bain. We've seen that private equity has always had a, a, a grow, a love for uh, aviation, and that's probably increased right post COVID. You, your outlook on the investor side, um, and have you seen any evolution or themes coming with the types of investors coming to aviation finance post COVID? I'm not sure I see much of a difference. Um, I we're not oriented again on trading, so like there wasn't a timing trade for us to come in and. And in every single one of the different deals, many of which that haven't closed versus and or that we haven't won uh, versus ones that we have prevailed in um, with the broader Bain Capital team, we really haven't been looking at timing trades. Um, so this really wasn't a, oh, you're pouring in because there looks to be a distress situation in COVID. We started dumb luck in January of 2020. Um, that doesn't mean we won't buy things that are in bankruptcy, right? I mean, the Bain team obviously acquired Virgin Australia out of yeah. the bankruptcy process. So um, that's part of what you do, but I think it's really looking at long-term compounding um, value, right? It's looking at exiting with multiples of money as opposed to, oh, the markets have traded this off, let's buy low and sell high. I think it's about really growing businesses. So uh, that's how we're oriented. Um, and so haven't really engaged in a lot of those, like, is there something cheap to go buy? It's like, does it work for a long period of time is really what we're thinking about. Um, so in the broader question, has more or less shown up? I mean, I think there's been plenty of people who show up opportunistically to see if they can um, you know, access opportunities. Uh, I would say that scale is meaningful insofar as accessing capital to support it. Um, and I think it's very difficult to sort of be good in this space if you're doing two, three, four, five, six airplanes and then trying to go there. And I certainly would not claim that we are the largest scale. There's plenty of others that are much, much bigger. But you know, deep access to capital and billions of dollars of capital, I think, are somewhat the requirement to be at the table for a lot of these things. Uh, or it's just a trade, right? So there's one thing to trade versus another thing to build a business around it. And I think you'll always have private equity firms or, or funds looking to make a trade. But I don't think there's much difference in those who are trying to build sustainable businesses versus uh, trading now versus pre-pandemic. And, and, and taking maybe aircraft as an asset class, right? And I'm, I'm not sure if you have perspectives on this from, from a Bain, who obviously have a, such a, a broad breadth of investments that they have. But your perspective on aviation generally as an asset class and how it stacks up to other opportunities that investors might be looking at. You know, we've seen a general sophistication or maturing of the market clearly uh, over the last decade plus. Your thoughts on where it sits now, and is there a little risk in this heightened uncertainty that, that it becomes slightly less attractive? The, to answer the last part, no. Um, but I think there's pricing dynamics that make it more or less attractive, depending upon what you're looking at. Uh, I think that the last decade, there was a real professionalization of financing aircraft airlines. I think you saw a lot of... Um, breadth of products in the credit markets, breadth of equity products show up, and a lot more people get engaged than what probably it looked like, you know, predating us, candidly, like in the 90s or the early 2000s about who was buying and selling and trading at these conferences. Um, so I think the business broadly was professionalized, and I think better transparency and better disclosure and reporting, more parties involved, um, I think all of that is very good. Um, I don't, again, think of it as relative value today or you know, yesterday or two days from now, I think global aviation uh, and commercial traffic is 
going to be essential going forward. Exactly what the growth rate is or exactly when there's uh, you know, shrinking demand versus growing demand, I, that's impossible to call. Um, but I still think there's the fundamental demand to travel and the thesis that we had in starting Griffin was we're willing to support lots of parts of that ecosystem, right? It may be airplanes, it may be airlines, it may be maintenance, it may be engines, it may be uh, you know, manufacturing or infrastructure. Like I'm agnostic as to what the actual product is. It's to support a business that's going to grow over many, many years and can we provide capital solutions to be partners with them. So um, again, timing, cost of capital are important at any moment, but it isn't sort of what I think fundamentally makes the investment work or not work. And maybe keeping with the vertical of leasing for a moment then, we've seen you know, a clear shift in the popularity of leasing post-COVID. You know, the, the reasons are clear around balance sheet distress. We, we've reached that 50% threshold, and if you look over the long-term average, it, it only ticks one way, sometimes quicker than others. Your thoughts on one, is the shift beyond 50% now sustainable, and two, if yes, will it go higher? I'm going to punt. I don't know and I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, those types of macro trends are very difficult for me to call. Um, you know, you look at, when, when you think about cost of capital and relative value, there was, you know, through the last decade, uh, capital was certainly more expensive and scarcer uh, or more scarce post the financial crisis. And over that decade, um, access to capital improved broadly and, and sort of becoming less expensive for equity, less expensive for uh, unsecured, less expensive for secured. And the terms that sort of lessors were willing to take, uh, airlines were certainly in the driver's seat of, um, you know, uh, loosening terms in leases. Much the same way that lessors um, and borrowers were in the driver's seat of loosening terms from banks because there was really that just more demand uh, of people looking to put bank debt to work or more demand in the capital markets to work or more demand from the airlines. That seems to have changed a bit. Um, and while I, I am not one to have ever said, oh, there's silly money here or silly money there, because there's always reasons that someone is looking to put it to work for whatever their strategy is or whatever their region is, it does feel a little bit like there's a shifting of capital going on. Um, it, it seems like the sort of ever-present Chinese capital that was coming into the market seems to have either paused or slowed a bit. Um, certainly not for large, well-established players, they're obviously involved, but um, some of the smaller players, it feels like um, that may have shifted a little bit. Um, it feels a little bit like um, because of currency, some of the traditional funding markets like Japan um, have slowed and will have to slow more. It's very difficult to buy dollar-denominated assets when your currency has traded off 30 plus percent. Um, even if there's a tax arb, like there's such a big move in currency that if that strengthens, uh, yep. you're in really, really big trouble. Um, so I think there's a lot of different challenges that most people who have been investing or deploying capital in the space are now dealing with in a different way um, than they would have over the last decade. So I don't think there's any less desirability. I mean, fundamentally, people still want to travel, but how that is manifest and where the capital is coming from, uh, what the underwriting terms look like or what the clearing terms are, I still think we're in a we're in the find that right now. Like that's that's kind of live uh, in process to figure out who's going to raise capital at what prices and what markets will be open and who's available. So that's very very relevant for the moment we're in. Yeah, and it, it speaks to maybe a point you were making earlier on scale, right? And, and the importance of scale, and, and your thoughts on has the importance of scale increased? You kind of look at the leasing market and we saw. 
know, a large diversification over the last 10 or 15 years, more lessors, more players in the game. Do you think that's going to tighten, right? Is it, is it the fact that, you know, accessing capital, be that being IG rated lessor or someone who has a very strong parent behind them, if you don't have that now, are you, you know, at risk? Yeah, certainly in today's market, you have more challenges, and, and probably in every market, you still have more challenges. I think there's been no question um, that the, the the leasing platforms that have been backed by large financial parents or the investment grade, which maybe both they may overlap, but they've they have absolutely had an advantage in the cost of credit over the past decade. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's an interesting point in time now because maybe some players who could have gotten bank debt. Uh, before may not have as much access to it because of that scale. I, I'm not obsessed with scale. This isn't like a you have to get big to succeed. Um, but so it helps. I, it, but <laughs> there certainly is help, and and um, it's a testament to all those platforms at scale that um, manage to perform so well on a credit uh, perspective. And the rating agencies, I think, have acknowledged that by holding ratings relatively unchanged, even through the incredible dislocation that commercial aerospace has dealt with in through COVID. Um, so I, I'm not obsessed with scale. Clearly, you have to be big enough to, to be able to deploy capital in meaningful ways and raise capital. Um, but uh, right now, it's very difficult for small guys to raise money. Yeah, and, and it does mean, I guess, people are looking for different types of opportunities. And you mentioned verticals, right? So it'd be keen for you to talk a little bit through what you've done with Arjed, the thinking behind that play. Um, and, and maybe, I guess, the, the different skill sets that have been required in supporting that startup business versus, you know, sale and leaseback business, something you're very, very familiar with. Uh, it has been, you know, it's like being thrown in the deep end, is learning how an operating business works. Um, I have the utmost respect for um, airline executives and the different challenges they have. Certainly the financing side has lots of complexity and there's many, many smart people who are involved in, in what we, what I have traditionally done. It is a completely different skill set in helping to support the growth uh, and establishment of an operating business in a new airline. Um, the First and foremost, you back people and you back um, the individuals who are leading them. And that was front and center in our um, decision to back Victor Pacheco um, in his dream to build the flag carrier of the Dominican Republic. Um, the investment was, again, not a timing trade. It was a fundamental demand that there's an island in the Caribbean with 11 million people with two and a half million uh, Dominican diaspora in the U.S. that didn't have affordable access to airfare. Um, and so it's a country with a certain sort of um, GDP per capita, there's a certain amount of disposable income, and we felt that there was a fundamental demand, as did he and as did the, the president and the government of the Dominican Republic, that there needed to be a more cost-effective way to bring, first and foremost, Dominicans home for you know, holidays, to, to visit family, and to travel off the island, and then second, uh, in sort of tourism and leisure, to give better and broader access around Latin America and eventually to, to the U.S. to the beautiful uh, beaches and uh, holiday destinations in the Dominican, um, and eventually, I think, connectivity um, around the Caribbean and around uh, Latin America and North America. So we view this as a business that will grow for the next decade um, as they grow into the order that they placed with uh, the Boeing company for 20 firm and 15 um, option maxes. 
they've already uh, closed their first sort of additional bridge aircraft from another major leasing platform, and we'll probably add aircraft over time. Um, but the skills involved in dealing with the regulators and getting an operating certificate and putting a maintenance plan in place and all the procedures around safety, um, processes and bottlenecks of how to uh, actually sell tickets and manage a uh, ticketing inventory system and revenue management, uh, how to deal with maintenance programs, uh, hiring practices people. It is so different than what um, I did for the prior decade uh, and I feel so fortunate to be a part of it and on the board uh, and to play a small role in, in supporting their success. They're an amazing group uh, and they've got an amazing opportunity with this sort of uh, I view partnership between the Boeing company, between uh, the government and, and real demand uh, in, that, in that country and then backed by uh, a bunch of capital from, from Bain and Griffin. Yeah, so a deepening respect for your wider client Huge, base. hugely <laughs> respectful. So I, I have new respect for how difficult it is to build a successful airline. Um, and, and maybe keeping with fleet for a second, right? So you guys have put in an order, right? Yeah, I'm curious as to the thinking behind that. Five, if I'm not mistaken. We, we, put, we have a PA with Boeing, and yeah. the first five were there. It was part of sort of those going eventually to Aerojet. We've used that PA to add other um, delivery slots too uh, that we don't really disclose who and why, but we've moved sort of different positions on there as part of uh, facilitating uh, PDPs and then also to the ultimate delivery. I, I would say that um, orders are great. Um, we probably will never be a giant order of aircraft, but is there a role for some amount of orders as we continue to scale the platform? Um, sure. I, I see us doing plus or minus three billion a year of, um, of aircraft financing. Uh, and at some point, could an order be a part of that? Sure. At this point, it's hard to imagine that making much sense. Um, not from our perspective, but really from the OEM's perspective. Like, we seek to be a partner uh, and support what they're doing, and uh, I would assume that when you've interviewed your, your sort of the, the folks from Boeing and Airbus, they would say they're sold out to infinity and beyond at this point. So I, I'm not looking to try to make a, I'm smarter than, you know, I've got a real insight into 20, 30 delivery positions. I have no clue. Um, so that isn't really what we focus on because I just don't think we can help make a difference there. Whereas I think there are a lot of different places right now that you know people need help with delivering the scale of airplanes or with special structures or growth in different ways, whether it's equity or uh, preferred or, or different structured pieces that they need in their business or growing you know, their terminals or their infrastructure that we'd support in any of those diversified ways. And, and But that fleet focus piece, because some of the St. Lee's pack stuff has obviously been Airbus as well, it, it's been a predominant, presumably narrow body, new tech focus to date. It's both wide body and narrow body. So we, yeah. I, I think the number is now we're breaching 50 uh, new deliveries that we've uh, committed to. Um, and I don't know what we'll end the year at, but somewhere in the 30s, uh, depending upon delays and what actually is delivered. Um, but no, we're, we've done a handful of different wide bodies. Uh, we've done uh, all all new new metal. Yeah, so we've yeah. done wide bodies. The ones we've announced at Air France, but there will be more to European carriers um, that are soon to deliver. Uh, again, who knows when the actual date is? But conceptually, this year, uh, if everything goes according to plan, and we'll definitely do more wide bodies. I just think there's a balance. So I don't think we're um, Airlines need wide bodies, and not every wide body is made the same, even within the use cases at airlines. So again, like a deep respect for the the fleet and route networks that, that sort of go with it, and a lot of the M&A that we've done in the different sort of uh, 
different processes to buy airlines outright, I have spent more time with actually what the use cases are for individual airplanes. Um, and so there are some wide bodies that work very well at carriers for part of what they're doing and some that don't. And so being very precise about where those are going is, is key to us in supporting them. But we're happy to do wide bodies as well as narrow bodies, but uh, I want to say we're probably 80-20 by value at this point, maybe 75-25. And shifting gears slightly, right, and um, bringing it into, you know, ESG with a particular focus on the E, right, and, and in playing in those different verticals, you have different perspectives. But, but your thoughts on the impact that the environmental challenge is having on aviation finance currently, right, and where you think it's going? The third rail of, uh, of aviation, the, the E part of it. Um, Thus far, uh, I think it's very difficult to see any meaningful impact in cost of capital for those that are pursuing environmental strategies. Um, I think pursuing environmental strategies because of more efficient aircraft and turn times and burning less fuel and getting more sort of passengers moved around makes a ton of sense. Like that to me is what I focus on um, with regards to the capabilities of the aircraft and, you know, burning less CO2 and, and being more efficient in the way that they run their businesses and operate within airspace or with turn times and taxiing being more efficient. So anything that's operationally helpful to an airline, I'm all for. Um, thus far, I haven't really seen any benefit to branding things as environmentally green, green yeah. et cetera. Um, and you know, I am not one who thinks it's important to cut off your nose to, to spite your face. I think making these businesses successful and having commerce continue with a focus on being as environmentally efficient as you can is the place to be as opposed to writ large trying to shut down airports or limit you know, the movement of people or goods or cargo. I don't think long term that helps anybody. And, and from your investor perspective, your shareholders, is it a focus on their side, right, um, on what they are chatting to you about your investments in or, or what your potential output on the CO2 side is? I mean, we've only invested in brand new technology aircraft, and that's because we've, that's where we thought the opportunity would be as opposed to investors steering us to go do something to check an environmental box. So we've made investments and done leases because we think the airplanes suit the business models and the business models are enhanced by new technology, Boeing and Airbus aircraft, um, rather than the other way around. So I think this is the, not the tail wagging the dog, I think it's the business and use case for the assets that we focus on first and foremost. Um, and it turns out that there's a really good environmental story to go with it, but it's not one leading the other. And, and just in closing then, Ryan, um, as I said, we sit here at the end of October, looking out over the rest of the year and maybe you know, ne next year and beyond. What, what are your optimism levels like? I would say I'm cautious. I don't think I would sit here as being the most optimistic guy, and I don't think I was the most optimistic guy last year when, you, um, when we, we had our interview. Um, I think healthy caution and is, is important. Uh, I am, of course, long-term bullish on the growth of our industry and of travel. Uh, I think there are a lot of different challenges that will be worked through uh, over the coming multiple years. So um, I am not trying to make a sector call of putting lots of money to work because I think everything's going to work and you know, rising tides lift all boats. 
um, nor am I the pessimist that says everything is going to zero. Um, I think there are, I would say that this is probably a stock pickers environment where picking partners, picking businesses that have competitive advantages and have an ability to nimbly react to those different challenges that we discussed early, for, earlier from cost of capital in the form of interest rates to the inflationary dynamic to the passenger demand to currencies to fuel. A lot of those variables are very difficult, so it's kind of all relative, uh, but I think finding businesses that are suited for long-term um, success with real fundamental demand in their markets and have competitive advantages relative to the market they operate in are where we're going to continue to look to, to support and put money to work. Well, Ryan, thank you as always for your excellent insights, and as you navigate these uncertainties, I wish you and Griffin the very best in the future. You're very gracious. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank <music> you.